Hi, you're now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. We're happy to bring you sermons like this one every week. You can find other sermons at our site at harvest-community.org. So without further ado, here's our speaker. The message for this morning uh, is entitled The Annunciation. And it's basically just a fancy way of saying the announcement. The text is coming out of Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. I know you guys were in that series at Harvest, uh, 100 Things, for uh, I think my brother said like several years. And we're just starting into Luke, and it took us two years to get through Ephesians. And so, I don't know, we may break your record with the 100 Things series, with our Luke series. But anyway, so... We're in Luke chapter uh, 1 right now in the third message of our series. And so if you have your Bibles, I encourage you and invite you to turn there to Luke 1. If not, feel uh, free to just look up at the screen. So you look again, Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. And it reads, In the sixth month, uh, God sent the angel Gabriel uh, to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who is said to be barren is in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. Can we pray? God, we turn our hearts to you and ask as we do each week, as we gather as your congregation, your people, that you would open our eyes to see the truth that is right before us. And yet often, uh, because of our slowness of heart, uh, that we do not see. And so would the Holy Spirit enlighten to us the things that we need to understand and grasp from the teaching that is found in this Word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I said in the introduction to our Luke series that... um, This verse 1 of chapter 1 is very central to the understanding of Luke's purpose in writing his gospel. As he says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. This word fulfilled is actually a a bit of a strange word in this sentence because there was actually a lot simpler, more straightforward way for Luke to have just simply said, I'm writing an account of the things that were done, these things that happened. But by saying these things that were fulfilled, 
is a very theologically loaded term. It can also be translated as accomplished. And what it seems to be capturing and what Luke is saying is, is that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that God has been doing since the very beginning. That everything that was going on in the Old Testament, all the hopes, the dreams, the desires of God's people in every generation finds their answer in the accomplishment of God through the life of His Son, Jesus Christ. In other words, the point of the Gospels is not to reveal the teachings of Jesus, the teachings of a wise ethical teacher, so that by obeying them, we can learn how to live a better life, how to make the world a better place. That's not the purpose of the Gospels. It's not even to tell us the life and times of Jesus, like it was his biography. It's to tell us how in the person of Jesus, the Son of God came into the world and died on a cross, so that through that accomplishment, you and I can have eternal life. That's why before, even a, uh, before we even reach the halfway point in the Gospel of Luke, Luke is already directing his attention to the final week of Christ. To his journey to the cross. In Luke chapter 9, we find in verse 51, as the time approached for him to take up, be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. This is happening in chapter 9. There are a lot more chapters ahead to cover, but now Luke is already looking at the death of Christ. This is also why Luke spends so much time talking about the birth of Christ. If all that mattered were Jesus' teachings, then we ought to just fast forward right into his adult life because that's the part of his life that really mattered when he became an adult and he began to teach people. But because it's focusing on the life of Christ, his identity as the Son of God, and what he came to accomplish, then Luke begins with his birth because he says even the circumstances that surround his birth matter. They speak to who he was as the unique Son of God. And one of the things that I just want to affirm and again and again as the preacher of the gospel is this, that Christianity is not about introducing us to a philosophy of living that makes us better people, but introducing us to a Savior who has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. And that's the point of the gospel. Not to show us a better way of living, a different approach to life, but to introduce us to this Christ who claimed to be God and as Luke will affirm, was the Son of God and is the Son of God. Now last week at I, here at ICC, we looked at the announce, birth announcement, not for Jesus, but for John the Baptist as the angel Gabriel came to this elderly couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah was a priest and there he was offering incense at the holy place in the temple, an opportunity that priests only had a chance to do once in their lifetime. And there he's encountered by this angel who tells him that your postmenopausal wife who has never been able to bear children but has been infertile in her entire life will now bear a son. Zechariah is in disbelief, can't even fathom what is being told him. But as he leaves and goes back home after his week of service in the temple, sure enough, Elizabeth becomes pregnant. 
She has conceived of this child that would one day grow up to become John the Baptist, a forerunner to none other than the Messiah himself. Well, Elizabeth is now six months pregnant. Gabriel leaves for another mission sent by God, this time to go to the small town of Nazareth. Now, Nazareth was such an insignificant town that Luke feels it necessary to point out that it's a town in Galilee because he already assumes that his audience won't have any clue where it is. In fact, it's such an insignificant and forgettable town that Nazareth is never once mentioned in the entire Old Testament. It doesn't count at all. It doesn't register. It's not on anyone's radar. In fact, when in, in the book of John, when Philip is talking to Nathaniel and says, you've got to hear this teacher that teaches amazingly. And he says, it's this Jesus of Nazareth. This was his comical reply. Nathaniel said this in John chapter 146, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathaniel asked. In our day, it would be something like this saying, come meet the Savior of the world, Jesus of Streeter, Illinois, <laughs> or Jesus of Ottawa, or Jesus of Shabans, <laughs> or Jesus of Gibson City, or something like that, right? It's like, Jesus of what? Of where? I mean, Nazareth was insignificant politically, socially, culturally, and even theologically. And so it's to this backwoods town of Nazareth that the angel Gabriel appears to this woman named Mary. We're told that this Mary is pledged to be married to this guy named Joseph. So if you were to look at Mary's Facebook page, her relationship status would say betrothed. Betrothed. Now, they, the NIV uses the word pledge because we don't really know what betrothal is. It's not a practice that's done in our modern era anymore. But betrothal was some, a common practice in the Jewish society in those days, which is, has some similarity to our engagement, but it actually was also quite different. Typically, when a man and woman decided to be married, they would commit to one another in what's called a betrothal. And that betrothal period would last basically about one year. That commitment was so binding that it was considered breakable only by death or by divorce. You had to get divorced if you decided you didn't want to get married. In fact, it was considered such a binding commitment even prior to the wedding that the man and woman would refer to one another as husband and wife already. That's how tight the commitment was. During this one-year period, the goal of the husband was to set up an adequate home for his soon-to-be bride. The goal of the wife was to demonstrate her purity and her faithfulness to her husband, her groom-to-be. Another detail that the Jewish histories tell us about betrothal is that in Jesus' day, the common age of betrothal for women was 12 to 13 years old. Now, last week for the ICC folks, I told you that one of the big problems I have with almost every gospel movie that's out there is that they cast an actress that's way too young for Elizabeth because it seems unseemly to see this old grandmotherly woman bearing a child. And so they almost always cast what's much more like a middle-aged woman to play Elizabeth. 
Well, I would argue the exact opposite is true of Mary. They almost always cast a woman that's too old. So if you look, this is the classic type of Mary figure that you see in all of the movies out there. Jesus of Nazareth and, you know, whatever, the movie Jesus and all that. They portray her more like a woman that seems in her late 20s if not in her 30s. But if we're going to be biblically accurate, this is the picture of Mary that we need to have. It's, it's a little bothersome, isn't it? <laughs> to think that this is Mary in Luke chapter 1, 26 to 38. If I met a girl like this age, speaking at a retreat, I'm not really sure that I would take her seriously. You know? I mean, she almost seems too young to really have any grasp of eternal things. Um, I'd almost be tempted to say, you know, just wait until you get out of junior high and get to high school, you know? <laughs> then, then, you know, get, you know get a little more you know, serious about the things you're talking about when you're talking about God. I just want you to look at this picture and let it soak in a little that God is trying to have a serious conversation with a girl like this about the destiny of mankind. And not only that, but God is about to entrust the welfare of His only Son into the hands of this girl. Another detail that we know about Joseph and Mary is this, that they were dirt poor. The way we know this is if you fast forward into Luke chapter 2, when they come to the temple to dedicate Jesus... They offer two doves. And in the law of Moses, there was this whole stratified sacrifice system to know what type of animals you could give according to the law based on your income level. And at the bottom of the barrel were two birds. If you can't afford anything else, throw in a couple pigeons on the altar fire and it's okay, you know? You, you can say your kid is dedicated. That's exactly what Joseph and Mary do. When the time of their purification, according to the law of Moses, had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as is written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. So God chooses a preteen or barely teenage girl in this obscure and insignificant town of Nazareth who is dirt poor to become the mother of God. But you know, this is nothing new. It's nothing new. God has been doing this throughout history, using those who have been passed over by everyone else, those who are judged and deemed to be worthless by the world. Lepers, prostitutes, orphans, criminals to accomplish some of His greatest works. And what breaks my heart more than anything as a pastor of Christ's church is to see people who have marginalized themselves and who assume that they're insignificant. And that's not because of what the Bible says. That is in spite of what the Bible teaches. Because over and over again, God intentionally seems to isolate people like this. People that everyone says, you're not part of the mainstream of what's happening here. You're not one of the movers and shakers. You're not one of the people that really matter. God says, 
you have no idea how much that person matters to me. And I'm going to take a little girl like this Mary and I'm going to make her the mother of my son. In other words, the message of Mary being chosen is that no one is beyond God's redemption. No one is insignificant or worthless in his eyes. So Gabriel appears to Mary and greets her with these words in Luke 1, 28. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Now, what is funny and interesting to me is Mary's response to this greeting. We talked a bit in the first message of Luke about how this is much more like eyewitness reportage than it is about the genre of legend and myth. Because you get replies like how Mary replied. It says that she was deeply disturbed by this greeting of the angel. Um, She couldn't figure out why an awesome angelic being like Gabriel would speak in such lofty language to a little teenage girl like her in Nazareth. It would be something like this, like you arriving to work on Monday morning, and instead of the usual hubbub of the office and everyone milling about, as you walk into the office that day, everyone just stops and drops the work they're doing, and they just stare at you. And then everyone is just staring at you, and then the boss shows up out of his office and says, she's here. Everyone, she's here. The woman of the hour is here, and everyone just starts applauding like crazy, and you just go to your desk. I think you would feel exactly like Mary felt. Is this a joke? What's going on here? Why are you talking to me like this? The particular hang-up that Mary seems to have is that she is called the favored one of God. That word favor is the same word from which we derive the English word grace. And that's why the Catholics have translated this phrase, Mary, full of grace, instead of highly favored. And it's unfortunate, but the Catholics have twisted this word in an unfortunate way to, in essence, say that Mary, what is being said about Mary is that she actually is the one that is filled with grace. And out of that understanding comes what is known in the Catholic Church as the Ave Maria or the Hail Mary. And some of you who may come from a Catholic background may be very familiar with that prayer because that intercessory prayer to Mary is really at the heart of a lot of Catholicism. And it goes something like this. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of death. The thinking according to the Catholic Church goes something like this. Gabriel was declaring Mary to be a being that was so filled with grace that then it becomes a natural extension to say she is a dispenser of grace. And therefore we ought to pray to Mary because she is so overwhelming with grace that she has excess grace to give to us. And so by praying for Mary to mediate for us, we're asking to tap into some of the extra grace she possesses that she can give to us. But that's an utter distortion of what Gabriel is saying to her because actually it's not in the active, it's not in the active voice, oh, you Mary who gives grace to people. You're full of grace. It's actually in the passive voice, you Mary the recipient of amazing grace. And so that's why 
the way we understand it is this, as Protestants, is to say, Mary, like any other person ever used by God, flawed, insignificant, weak, despite who we are, have been recipients of God's unmerited favor or His grace. Whether we're talking about Abraham or Samson or David or this Mary, the goal is not to try to figure out what is it about these people that made them worthy to be chosen by God, to be used in such a special way. Instead, the message of the Bible is this. In spite of everything that we are, God is still able to accomplish His will through us. In fact, that's precisely one of the reasons why God chooses to use often the weak, the insignificant, though seemingly worthless, is to say that I don't want you to look at these people. I don't want you to look at David or Mary or Abraham and say, wow, what a great hero, what an awesome person. I want you to see that they're just like you and I. They're just normal people. And yet in that situation, God can accomplish great things. So the angel says to Mary, because he obviously sees her in great distress, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son. You are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. I want you to understand that for the very first time to this teenage girl in Nazareth, God's plan for salvation in its fullness has for the very first time been revealed. Basically, the message is this. You are going to give birth to a child that is not a messenger from God, that is not like God, a godly person, a prophet. You are going to give birth to deity. You are going to give birth to God himself. That's why it uses terminologies like reigning on the throne of David forever. He will have a kingdom that will never end. You don't use this kind of language to talk about a messenger. This is God language. And so Mary is being told, you know, you're not just going to give birth to a great man. You're going to give birth to the second person of the Trinity. Of John the Baptist, it was said, he will be great in the sight of God. In other words, God will think very highly of him. But of Jesus, it just says, you will be great. He will be great, unqualified, in essence, great. And that kind of language in the Bible is used almost exclusively of God Himself. And for us in our modern day, it's hard to understand the impact of this lofty language because we have so abused the English language when we use these superlatives, don't we? We throw around terms like awesome and great and amazing and these days epic like it's nothing, right? And we've really done a lot of damage to being able to talk about the things that are truly epic. If a deep dish pizza can be epic, nothing is epic. Do you understand that? If a pizza is epic, nothing is epic. But the Bible is not like that. It's a lot more stingy with this kind of superlative. And so to call Jesus great is to call Him God. Only God is great. And this son, Mary, that is in your womb shall be called great. 
It's also clear that it's to fulfill the prophecy given years ago that the way that this child will come into the, wo- the world is through the womb of a virgin. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. And so in the birth narrative, we find a characteristic of Jesus that would go with him throughout his entire life into adulthood, which is this interesting mixture of majesty and great humility. This eternal, great God who will establish a throne of David forever and ever, and his kingdom will be everlasting, is also the great one who will be born to a young teenage girl in Nazareth to a poor carpenter's family. Perfect and sinless, even the dirtiest of sinners finds him approachable. Holding all the power of heaven in his hand, he takes the posture of a servant. Though he had all the rights to the riches of his heavenly father, he lived in simplicity and poverty. As he would confess later on, I don't even have a home to call myself uh, of, of my own, a place that I can call my own. So all-powerful, he is approachable. Though he is God, he understands our weakness more profoundly than we can ever imagine. And what other God could we worship than that? Isn't that true? A God who holds all of the power to deliver us in our time of need, and yet knows more intimately than anyone else the pain and the suffering that we go through. Mary is utterly confused by what Gabriel says. And she says in chapter 1, verse 34, How will this be? How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. We're so familiar with the birth narrative of Jesus that I think, frankly, it's very hard for us to conjure up any sense of wonder when we talk about the virgin birth in the church anymore. But you have to understand, there was no Old Testament prophecy that ever said that God would become a man. There was nothing in Judaism that would suggest that either. This is all completely new to Mary. And there was something so hard for her to wrap her mind around. Though she might have been 12 or 13, it's pretty clear she she at least took sex ed in school because she at least knows a virgin cannot bear a child. And that's the particular thing that gets her hung up. She says, how is this possible? How is this possible? I have never slept with a man. I've never laid with a man How can you tell me that I'm going to be pregnant here? And so the angel says in verses 35 to 37, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who said to be barren is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. What Gabriel, in essence, is telling Mary... You don't have to understand all the mechanics of how this is going to happen, okay? But in a mysterious way, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and His presence is going to cover over you. And as His presence covers over you, you are going to have a child in your womb. You will be pregnant and you will deliver this child. Now, it's interesting to me that in the previous verses, Zechariah also doubts when he's told that his postmenopausal wife, Elizabeth, is going to become pregnant. But what's interesting is that Zechariah gets punished pretty severely. 
he's, made, he's struck by the angel so that he becomes mute. And he cannot talk for almost a year until his son is born. Mary also doubts. And she says, how can this be? And the angel says, now, now, Mary, sit down here. Let me explain to you how it's going to work. What's the deal here? Talk about favoritism, right? Zechariah gets beat up for his question. Mary gets comforted and gets further explanation. What's going on here? What's going on here? Well, if you read those earlier verses about Zechariah, what you discover is the angel makes when he rebukes, when he punishes Zechariah, he makes it clear that that doubting, that questioning is coming from a posture of unbelief. He refuses to believe that this is possible. In other words, all doubt is not the same. It's not the same. There is a doubting that is narrow-minded and closed to really listening to a response. There is a kind of questioning of God that is not really even questioning. It's really a judgment to God based on our own assumptions of what is possible, what is real. That was seemingly the type of approach that Zechariah was giving. Impossible. Impossible. How can my wife get pregnant? It cannot be. But Mary's questioning seemed to come more from a place of genuine hungering to know the truth, of seeking. And it is precisely that kind of honest struggle in our search for faith that God is patient with us. And He is giving us what we need in terms of leading us and helping us to come to a deeper level of understanding. In other words, God is not afraid of our questions when they are coming from a place of genuine hungering and seeking after the truth. In fact, it is often by asking those questions that we come to understand some of the greatest and most profound truths of God. Some of the greatest truths of God, in fact, found in Scripture come out of people questioning God and asking things of Him. And the same is true. One of the greatest gems that we have in the New Testament is in response to Mary's question, how can this be? Because the angel says to her, Nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. In other words, Gabriel was telling Mary, do not limit what God can do because of your own distorted and limited image of who you think He is. As an adult, Jesus would return to Nazareth, His hometown, and begin to teach in the synagogue and begin to perform miracles. The people of Nazareth begin to become in an uproar, amazed at this guy because of his teaching and what he was able to do by the power of God. But then an undercurrent began to grow in Nazareth as people began to grumble. And it says in Luke chapter, or Mark chapter 6, verse 3 to 6, the Nazarenes say, Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas and Simon. Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, only in his hometown, among his relatives and in his own house, is a prophet without honor. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. You see, why couldn't Jesus do many miracles in Nazareth? because of their lack of faith. There's a temptation to think that what happens is that faith is like a magical key that somehow unlocks the door to God's power. 
And so I need to have faith, almost like it's like a magical spell or something, that if I just believe, it's sort of like Dorothy clicking her heels and saying, there's no place like home, there's no place like home, and when you open your eyes, you'll be back in Kansas, right? That's not what's happening here. What Jesus seems to be saying is is this. The reason why he didn't perform any miracles is because he says, what's the point? What's the use? There's no point in me showing the power of God to these people. Because no matter what I do among them, their skepticism and doubt does not allow them to lead to greater trust in God. And so Christ says, there's no work for me to do here. There's no point in my demonstrating my power here because that power will go unacknowledged. You see, the Nazarenes just couldn't get over the fact that they saw Jesus growing up as a kid among them, the snot-nosed kid running around without a shirt on, Mary chasing him down the road. Say, we know Mary, we know Joseph, we know his family. This guy doesn't come from God. He comes from down the street there. I have a cabinet that the guy made when he was a teenager. It's sitting in my family room. How can this guy be the son of God? We can say this. Lack of faith is a primary limiter of what God can do in our lives. And I'd argue that just like these Nazarenes, God is looking to us to see, do we have faith to believe in the demonstration of God's power in our life. And I think whatever we profess with our lips, the way we live our lives demonstrates whether that faith is real or not. Do we really believe that nothing is impossible with God? Do we really believe that? You know, I think this is often why we struggle so much for a more passionate prayer life. Because in truth, we don't believe. We don't really believe our prayers make much difference. Because if we really believe that the source and the solution, the answer to all of our problems lies in the power of God available to us through the person of Jesus Christ, why would we not claim that power more in our lives? Many of us are struggling with marital issues, children issues, parenting issues, work issues, career issues, finance issues. mental health issues, depression issues. And yet we are offered this truth of God. Nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. This is not a judgment. This is an invitation to each and every one of us to discover the power of God available to all of us who are in Christ Jesus. Well, you know, at the end of the conversation, everything doesn't make sense to Mary, but she has heard enough. So she closes the conversation with these words to Gabriel. In Luke 1.38, I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. I think too often in the birth narrative, we go straight from the Annunciation to the Magnificat, found in the next verses, when Mary sings her song, right? But we have to understand that this is what happened before Mary could sing. The conversation doesn't end in a positive note. 
This isn't done to a chorus of angels going, Ooh, may it be done to me. I am God's servant. It's not like that. This is a very somber, dark tone that Mary closes the conversation with. But what is happening here is this. Mary realizes that this child that is going to be born in her womb, her virgin womb, is the Son of God. And her only conclusion then is, I am that Lord's servant. Now, this word servant is rounded in a softer way in the English just to try not to rub American sensibilities in the wrong way. So it's usually translated as maidservant, handmaiden, servant. But the Greek word is a pretty blunt and direct slave. Slave. What she literally says to Gabriel is, I am a slave girl of the Lord. In essence, what Mary is saying is this. If this is truly my God in my womb, what other choice do I have but to surrender and submit to that Lord? Now, you have to understand what Mary was confessing when she was saying, I submit to what's about to be done to me. Because in one's perspective, you can say, that's such an awesome thing. Do you understand, Mary? You were chosen among all the women in the world to be the mother of God. But the implication to Mary was quite different because she was probably thinking in her heart of hearts, boy, this is a tough one to sell to the people in my community. I'm going to start showing in a few months, and I haven't married Joseph yet. When Mary said, let it be done to me, let it be done to me, just as she said, what she was in essence saying was, let me bear the shame of what's about to be done to me. All the rumors flying of my infidelity to Joseph, this purity and faithfulness reputation that I've worked so hard to earn is about to be shattered with this pregnancy. I have to talk to my fiancé and tell, explain this to him. You see, these are the things going through Mary's mind. And in fact, we realize it because in Matthew's account, it makes it clear that Joseph doesn't buy it. <laughs> yeah, really? Come on, Mary. Holy Spirit over you? Yeah, uh-huh, yeah, whatever. And he wants to divorce her quietly and send her away. Mary understands the scorn and the shame and the judgment and the reproach that she is going to have to bear all of her life in order to be the mother of God. But she says, let it be done to me. Let it be done to me as you say. Why? Because if this is who you truly say he is, then their only answer is to surrender wholly and totally to him. And that's how I just want to close this morning with to you as a challenge. I imagine that in this room, we have all kinds of views about what church ought to be, what the ideal church looks like. You may have your own opinion on what's going to happen in the end times with the rapture and with the persecution and the tribulation and all of that. You can have even different views on women in the church and what their role is or what ministry ought to be and on and on and on and on, which is fine. But the one question that you need to be confronted with, which is a non-negotiable and that you need to settle in your heart of hearts, is the question that is being asked in the Gospels of every single person who encountered this Jesus. The question that was asked of Mary that day. Who do you say this Jesus is? Who do you say 
this Jesus is. And how you answer that question answers all of the other questions in your life. And as much as all of us are coming to church and maybe in an outward way saying Jesus is Lord, I want to just invite you to look at your life and see what the testimony of your life declares. Because I think for some of us, Jesus is nothing more than an enlightened teacher that helps us in certain rough patches in our life. Or Jesus is a crutch that you lean on in moments of crisis, but you as easily discard when things are going well in your life. Jesus is just like an inspirational mascot there to cheer you up when you're feeling down and comforted when you're lonely. But as Mary had to grapple with that day, this young teenage girl, Jesus is the Son of God. He is Lord of Lords. He is the King that will reign forever on David's throne, building an everlasting kingdom. And if I sincerely believe that with all of my heart, then the only response is one of total surrender and worship. May it be done to me. Whatever you desire, God, I am your servant. Let us pray. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.